I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On this episode, I'm going to tell a story from a collection of tales I call Patches from a Secondhand Planet. It takes place on a far-off world sometime in the way out there future that while the terrain is beautiful, also seems like a savage yard got dropped on it. The people on the Secondhand Planet have been there for a while but can't remember how they got there. With existences consisting from clumps of city-states to hiding hermits and hunters, most just try to survive while a few are seeking out their histories by digging in the ground. With that out of the way, let's get going with this particular story called Machimium versus the Cook within Kernum. Some second-hand planet laps around the sun ago, there was a mountain called Kernum, which was a wonder on its continent in that its wall surfaces were not of rock but of soft tree bark. The legend was that a group of forgotten people living among the patches of woods on Kernum had learned to graft the skin of trees onto the skin of the mountain. No one knew why, but it made for a beautiful sight, enough for visitors from cultures with disposable incomes to come and stroll along its cliffs and paths. The native peoples in that region, possibly descendants of the forgotten bark grafters, had long ago subdued Kernum's network of caves, making a city fortress within the mountain, and of course gladly accommodated the visitors while, at the same time, helping them lighten their purses. These mountain dwellers also loved their entertainment. They staged an outdoor plays in the mountaintop amphitheater at night, the lights from the performances illuminating a pocket of the mountain, which could be observed for many kilometers away. But these days, Kernum was a place that haunted the dreams of those who didn't live there. No humans went near there unless they were wanting to test their bravery or to end their own lives. You see, around ten years ago, a pack, or an army rather, of cook wolves had silently trotted onto the mountain and ripped apart the bodies of the humans living there. Why these particular dogs came was a mystery. No wolves were indigenous to the region, and so could not have been provoked as far as anyone could tell. They just arrived, murdered, and made themselves at home. Eventually, a legend explaining the arrival of the cook appeared on the mouths of men. It was said that one of the Kernum men had picked up a few domesticated wolves while traveling through a far-off region and brought them back to the cavern city. One of the dogs considered itself better than the others, and so tended to eat its own given food portions in addition to some of the other dogs, which it took by force. The human caretaker caught this bullish wolf mistreating his other pets one day and punished it with a minor but dominant establishing rap on the nose. Shortly after this incident, the selfish wolf crept out of Kernum one evening, vowing one day to execute revenge upon his former disrespectful master. Once out in the wild, the cook wolf found that it lacked much in the way of hunting and turning up food. But he had studied some of the sciences of men and also knew how to push his will on other wild dogs he met. In time, he was in command of an army and on that dreadful day took his revenge by invading the Kernum settlement. From that moment on, he was a self-appointed king of the cook, supposedly even sitting upright in a chair he claimed was his throne. Whether this yarn was true or not seemed dubious given the unlikelihood any human could have seen all the reported events firsthand. But it was a terrifying story told to thrill-seeking children, and there might have been a lesson in there somewhere. But there were additional parts of the legend 
that were withheld from children's ears, such as what the wolves got up to in their mountain lair. Some people whispered that the Kuch had not killed the children of the previous dwellers, but left them to grow into meatier adults, only to be feasted upon at some later date. Others said the dogs kept some of the adult women alive to mate with them, either producing pitifully deformed half-breeds or super-warrior werewolves. But again, no one really knew for sure. And though losing the Kernum civilization to the Cook Wolves was a tragedy to humanity, people in the surrounding regions had remained uninterested in retaking the mountain. They were just grateful that the hellish dogs hadn't wanted their villages or towns for their own. And so, everyone left the beasts to their stolen fortresses. That is, until about six months from the focal point of the story, when the Cook Wolves began raiding nearby settlements for livestock be they cattle, horses, or even the roof-sitters, a kind of a cat with feathered wings that, in spite of its ability to fly, mostly just took naps all day and only moved around to eat or perform other bodily functions. Initially, the human response was better defenses, acquiring guard dogs and making select sons or cripples keep watch from hidden lookouts to sound the alarm when the raiders crept up to the farms and ranches. But this practice was just a temporary solution because a cook always still seemed to steal away with an adult or two, no matter how on their guard the villagers were. The final impetus for the locals to take a more offensive action was that one of the villages called Hethalo had been attacked by the cook and all the living creatures there had been slaughtered and presumably eaten, only bloody shreds of clothes and fur being left behind. This wiping out of an entire town and their generations-long clans forced other communities to resolve to become more proactive or face extinction themselves. But this was easier said than done for reasons that will become clear later. This brings us to a wolf hunter named Maki Miam. For years, the young man had studied the animals and knew how they moved, smelled and howled to the point that he could infiltrate most packs of any wild dogs he targeted, while the other hounds never noticed that there was an imposter trotting alongside them. The story of how Makimiam had become the expert that he was, was unknown to those who knew his name, he not much of a talker. But I know that as a boy, his family had been traveling through a snowy wilderness in a far-off region and was attacked in the night by a pack of seat wolves. While Makimiam's father tried to fight the dogs off with a pitiful staff, his mother tossed the future wolf hunter up into a tree, where he amazingly got tangled up in some branches. The then boy watched his mother join in the fight with some cooking knives while yelling at his two older sisters to get up into the trees themselves. These two, Tui and Rili, were stubborn. They ignored their mother and joined their parents in the hopeless battle with handfuls of stones and dirt. The four were tore apart in less than a few minutes right under young Makimiam's eyes. The boy slung up in the tree didn't escape the seat wolves' notice, but before they could attempt to ascend and retrieve the young shivering source of meat, the sound of other humans nearby could be heard. The dogs got spooked, and with various pieces of Maki's family in their jaws, they disappeared into the dark between the trees. In time, Makimiam was rescued by some hunters, who gave the boy to a childless couple. His adoptive parents were good to Maki, and they repeatedly praised the maker for sending the boy into their lives, although they never said these kinds of things in front of him, which he might take at they being thankful for how he had become orphaned. The nightmare of what Makimiam had witnessed happen to his birth family, though, never left his mind. So when he got old enough and had finished his chores on his adopted parents' orchard, he would slip away for hours at a time, teaching himself to track dogs of all sorts. Maki often studied their silhouettes on ridges 
and tried his best to mimic their habits and behaviors. But these dogs were so safely far away, Makimiam didn't feel like he knew them yet. He would have to get closer to be able to look into their eyes and truly know them well enough to fight them. Up until Makimiam appeared on the scene, any other human that had ever gotten within a stone's throw of the hellhounds usually got their throats torn out before they were able to observe anything useful. What would give the determined young man that opportunity to look directly into their soul windows was a trader who'd come by the orchard and showed Maki's adoptive family a kind of mechanical eye, something like a high-powered telescope made from the irises of war dragons. It was expensive, but it was the first thing Makimiam had ever asked of his adoptive parents for, and though they weren't people of means, they shifted around enough of their finances to buy the device for their gift of a son. With the WAR telescope, Makimiam discovered the multiple nuances of various other creatures in addition to wolves, but of course the devil dogs were his main focus. He watched how they organized themselves, interacted with each other, and most importantly how they fought. Eventually, the day came where Makimiam wanted to test his observational skills against a live wolf. He'd trailed a pack that were, in turn, trailing an Infulofan and its mother. The boy had noticed that there were always lone, lag-behind soldiers whenever the pack moved about. So creeping up as quietly as possible, Makimiam rigged a deceptive noise so that the rear scout would come back to investigate. Unfortunately, there were two scouts who came to investigate. But the boy decided an encounter with two would either let him join his birth family in death or garner him enough experience to launch him considerably closer to having his desired expertise. Maki lay in hiding until the two wolves entered the dip in the woods floor where he wanted them. Both sniffed the air, one immediately backing up out of the area. As the other wolf stood still, not leaving out of arrogance, ignorance, or as the offered sacrifice to save the rest of the pack, a nail shot from an unseen direction and entered the belly of the scout backing away. The still-standing dog, seeing its comrade's wound, realized the projectile could have only came from the ground. It was a discovery too late because two hands shot from the leaf-heavy floor it stood upon and grabbed it by its neck. The hand seemed to be lined with additional nails, and the more the wolf tried to pull away, the more of its flesh was ripped. And that was Makimiam's first successful kills, which inched him toward his end goal. Given the two dogs had, at the last minute, caught his scent, the young man realized that he'd have to figure out a better way of masking it. In time, though, Makimiam would become confident enough in both his camouflaging and fighting skills to just be standing there, unhidden for the scouts, ready to battle. The young man's first few open brawls earned him several scars and a considerable loss of blood, but the more fights he participated in, the less injuries he endured. One might assume that the boy's actions were that of revenge for the murder of his family, but if asked, he would insist that this was not true. The lesson he took from the loss of his family was that if his father had been better versed in wolf fighting, the family might have all still been alive. So what Makimiam was doing was just making sure that if he should ever end up surrounded by a pack of dogs, he'd have a fighting chance. He didn't hate the animals, nor see them as evil or noble either one. They were just seeking their next meals and did not discriminate between cattle, other dogs, or humans. The only time he ever saw anything close to the human trait of compassion or adoration was when a female gave birth to cubs. But that only lasted until the pups were able to get around on their own. And then, from then on, any maternal affection that they had expected to receive shifted into cold cruelty.
mocking me and even seeing a mother wolf break the spine of one of her own children when he got a little too greedy with the mother's portion of kill meat. The young man also observed that many of the wolf species were ruled by chiefs who though always got the best part of a kill and took the first choice of any of the female wolves was always having to sleep with one eye open for the other dogs that would murder him for his powerful position. A miserable life for all, it seemed to Makimiam. He even at one time came across a dying wolf chief who had been dethroned by a soldier and left behind for the carrion birds. The young man held the dog's head in his lap, stroking the poor creature's blood-drenched fur. But the wolf didn't seem pitiful or afraid of death. It looked simply relieved. In a couple of years, having achieved his goal of feeling about as wolf-ready as one could be, Makimiam next focused on what he would do for a living once he was then old enough to leave his adoptive family's orchard. But before he could come to a decision, there was an incident that would fine-tune the rest of his life. A pack of viote dogs had attacked a couple of farmhouses near his own home, dragging off a few children. While a group of men were forming to go chase the beast down in hopes of retrieving their kidnapped kin, Maki went off on his own ahead of the organized party and in a short time had caught up with the pack. After the initial bloody clash, the Viotes Maki hadn't yet gotten around to killing became convinced it would probably be best to cut their losses. Dropping the children, the dogs fled for their lives. Thing was, the village men had caught up to the scene of the battle and witnessed the tail end of the incredible carnage Makimiam brought upon the four-legged monsters. From there, the young man's reputation spread throughout the region, and the boy became a wolf killer for hire, which is what led representatives of the threatened towns around Kernum to make a trek to Maki's family home. Initially, the young man refused their plea for help. Well, I should clarify that what he had actually refused to do was to go into the deadly nest all by himself. Yes, it's true I'm decent at battling the beasts, Makimiam explained to the visiting men. But that's when there are at most a handful to take on. A whole civilization of animals would be suicide. What the young man didn't go into detail about for the delegation was to explain that while taking on any number of wolves is difficult in itself, the cook wolves were especially fearsome because of their well-fortified bodies. What looked like black-veined webbing under these particular dog's fur were actually a substance with a structure between tendon and bone, which gave them immunity from imprecise sword attacks. Makimiam had discovered this trait firsthand when he had been hired by a maker convent located in an enormous webworks in the forest of Ombre Dandum Mutande to extract a cook wolf that had infiltrated their cloister in the trees. It's a story for another time, but real quick. The sisters there had formerly lived in among some cliffs when one of their members went missing, which in time they learned had gotten herself caught in a grizzly spider's web while hunting treetops for bird eggs. A 12-year-old sister named Inapesh Bruziais, who had grown up learning the general hunting trade by accompanying her father on game-seeking treks, killed the great mother spider, after which another sister, a former chemist, found a way to make the webs hard and unsticky. The devout women decided to make the web their home. Inapesh was off helping kill a pack of river shark spiders, terrorizing fishermen, which is also a story for another time. But because of that, the ladies lost their in-house warrior, and a few sisters were mauled by the cook until Maki was able to extract the beast. But what I can do, the young man offered to the village spokesman, and Maki went on to propose to train an army of wolf hunters selected from men of the respective villages to assist him in an invasion. That can't be done. A council member 
whom talked more than the others, stated, Why not? Maki shot back, assuming cowardice was the reason. Surely I need not remind you that your existences are at stake. Yes, well, the spokesman started. He's shaking his head in frustration. You see, in our villages, there's a cultic belief that the wolves are demigods or agents of the planet. Whatever the dogs do is the just will of Brother Nature, and so we can't go against them. The young man looked perplexed and became exasperated at such a group of delusional or gaulish people standing in front of him, but asked anyway, So why are you employing my assistance, if it will be, in effect, going against the will of the planet? Our reverence for the creatures was instituted some generations ago by ancestors whom had never had any actual interaction with the beasts. They'd seen images and heard a few stories from other cultures, and in time a great poet romanticized the dogs in his verse. The hook only began being spotted in our neck of the woods a decade ago, and so we never really knew their murderous natures. Nonetheless, when the wolves slaughtered the Kernum, many of us assumed the planet had a good reason. The mountain people had become evil or indulgent, perhaps. But now that the beasts are picking off our own people, some of us now question the wisdom in this belief system. Those of us who have these doubts must be careful and silent in our disbeliefs. The cult is strong, and the current leader is vindictive. All to say, this is why we ask your help, but at the same time, can't help you. Maki shook his head, wondering that if, in a bizarre, ironic sense, the cult was correct in that if these delusional villages were wiped off the map by the cook, it was the planet's way of getting rid of foolish people. Still, he politely declined and bid the visitors goodbye and good luck. That evening, Maki awoke smelling smoke and via a glance from his window discovered that a grove of the orchard's trees were on fire. Rushing outside to put out the blaze, he found his mother and father on their knees, the councilman holding machetes over their heads. We're sorry, young man, apologized the council spokesman, but we ask you again, please help us. And what choice did he have? Which is why Maki Miam found himself creeping within the wood-insulated veins of the Kernum Mountain a few days later. Fitted with the hide of a lone cook he'd fell upon along the foot of the mountain on his first day in the region, the young man had been able to pass himself off as one of the tribe. Because of this, Makimiam had been roaming fairly freely and was, after about a half a week, beginning to get a vague lay of the mountain. The structure was enormous and teemed with passages going up and down as complex as blood vessels, all of these hallways pocketed with countless rooms. Most of the interior was lit lightly by the beautiful stone flicker flowers, which was enough to keep the young man from trotting into walls or tumbling off cliffs. And just as on the outside of Kernum, most of the interior of the mountain was padded by the bark, save the floors. It gave the tunnels a soft quiet where noises didn't reverberate as far. Also of note were the many exit ways along the cliffs outside of Kernum, which looked to have been the private terraces and balconies of the previous human occupants. Maki observed that one might initially have assessed that these entry points would have been excellent for a quiet clandestine penetration, but once he had had a good gander down from one of these towering points, he concluded that no one with human feet could have scaled up to them. The only observable way into the mountain was via the main entrance, which was adorned by two giant wooden doors. It wasn't difficult for Maki to enter this way, given that the cook both never closed the doors 
and seemed to be so confident that they didn't even post guards at this giant mouth of the mountain. The young man initially found an uninhabited side room to, in a way, set up camp. Here, Maki stored useful items he had come upon, ate his store of dried fruits and meats, and slept. He slowly moving his hours of operation to be in sync with the nocturnal cook. The wolf hunter also studied here on what information he was gathering on the wolf kingdom and how any of it could help him towards his mammoth task. He also at times spent probably too much time chastising himself for spending nearly all of his life learning how to neutralize the dangers of wolves, but never once considering how to sidestep the ever more deadly creature, humanity. Some of his time in solitude was given to constructing some scenarios of just forgetting the cook altogether and going straight to those who held his parents captive. During his more selfish moments, Maki wondered if just waiting things out and letting the wolves pick off his new human enemies was not the wiser option. Also, too much time in the young man's mind was spent wondering why the sight of his helpless parents, in spite of how loving and kind they had been to him, didn't necessarily bring any sorrow, only disgust at his own inability to help them. This was a kind of idolatry of the self, the maker-talkers would probably say, and so Maki tried to stay focused on the task at hand. It didn't take much insight to realize that considering what had happened to Maki Miyam's birth parents and sisters, it was no wonder he had had all the emotions of a tree stump up to this point in his life. Maybe this detachment, while tragic in some sense, would enable him to serve a needed function within the secondhand planet, as had his skill of murdering wolves had done. If Maki ever ran into the 12-year-old spider-killing nun, he would compare notes of her. During the waking hours, the cook trotted in all various directions through the passageways. They all seeming to know where and what to do by instinct. Yet Maki had not been able to figure out who or what was directing their activities. That is, until one morning, Maki seemed to be in a particular tunnel where all the dogs headed in one direction. And so falling in line, that is how the young man located an area inside Kernum that looked to have been a council or a worship hall for the previous human tenants. This room was noticeably different, Maki perceived, though it took him a moment to make the distinction. It was the one chamber where the walls were not padded with the bark, its reverb making nearly all sound a bit more menacing and lengthy. But sound was one thing, and what could be seen was even more horrifying. Firstly, there was the side of the room filling with hundreds of the demonic dogs, like looking in on a cellar full of scurrying rats. But a more grotesque sight was shown by a light from an opening in the rock ceiling that seemed to point at a horrible beast that sat, albeit ill-fittingly, in a human chair. In spite of now having nearly lost all emotion when laying eyes upon any adversarial dog, Maki actually felt a chill at the sight of this creature, a dog bloated from both gluttony and the lack of movement on its throne. Much of its fur was thinned out and many of its vein ribs were broken, the creature having expanded so much beyond its intended size. It could barely fit in the padded human chair even. In total contrast to the creature in its worst state were the sleek menacing ring of guard wolves. They sat alert, their ears perking this way and that, it seeming at times they giving suspicious lookovers at each other even. There was some kind of menacing contraption erected next to the king's chair, but something else pulled Maki's attention away from ascertaining the machine's purpose. 
The wolf hunter, again, a generally numbed by now individual, found himself shuddering both from horror and hatred. There was a filthy naked human woman combing the chief's fur with her stained fingers. Makimian was still young and maybe couldn't make the distinction, but I can tell you that the girl was barely a woman, maybe a teenager, but only by a year if that. Though no human could possibly know this, the king cook had actually felt uneasy and inadequate in his rule for the first few months at least. The reason? The mountain was littered with great sculpted statues of certain warriors, wise men, beauties, and so many others the former Kernam Mountain people revered amongst themselves. The chief wolf could take some comfort in his conquering their kingdom and ruling from their throne, but hated the fact that none among his army, himself included, could produce such tributes in stone. With the statues all around, some even sculpted from the rock wall, he felt as if the defeated humans were mocking him from their graves. Knocking down and defacing the stone bodies helped some, but the king could still feel them smiling confidently in their shattered states and from behind where the bark had grown over. That is, until the day he decided to have his way sexually with one of the females they hadn't yet eaten. She had been someone's daughter, even possibly of one of those kings memorialized in stone. This infliction of rape and misery on the girl waved away any inadequacies that had lingered in the dog. But this terror had to be repeated time and time again to threaten the Kernum ghosts with the cook's version of firelight. There now in the throne room, the king cook Wolf licked at the girl's skin when she got close enough to his lazy head. She trying to make a sound of being pleased, but it was clearly peppered with tears and moans of hatred. If the girl had had any illusions about her importance to the chief cook, these were dispelled by the body of another naked woman which lay nearby off to the side of the throne, she missing her head, it looking like it had been eaten off. Maki could only assume by the chief's greasy and blood-stained chin that the monster used these human mothers, sisters, and daughters as both consorts and food. That said, the kills of the day were brought into the throne room and consisted of a few deer, a dozen roof sitters, and a cow croaker. The king got first dibs, of course, and his subjects fought over the rest. Between the sight of the dead human body and the smell of both it and the other kills, the young man wanted to leave the throne room immediately. But as that... The dogs were beginning to curl up, lick their fur, and drift to sleep. A quiet stillness dominated the room that Maki was quite sure any movement of his, regardless of his skill up to this point, would disrupt the calm and alert the guards to his presence. He decided to curl up as well, but only pretended to sleep. He quite certain his slumbering body would, at some point, betray that it was not that of a dog's. And Maki Miam thought some more with this new bit of information at the back of his mind. It was clear to the young man that if he were to take out the entire cook civilization, he would certainly have to execute their king first. But by the wolf hunter's reckoning, his nails or sharpened throwing stones wouldn't guarantee the death of such a large creature. Getting up to the wolf chief to deliver a proper sword gutting would probably be adequate to send the king to his grave, but this action seemed nearly impossible to render, given the crack guard dogs that surrounded their bloated chief. Maki suddenly noticed that their was also a small trickling stream that ran nearby the east side of the throne. That could prove useful, though the young man wasn't sure how just yet. Maki's mind kept straying from strategy and scenarios after some moments, his eye returning to the pitiful scene of the slave girl. She lay on the floor at the feet of the king who was passed out in his chair. Maki thought he heard her sniffing, indicating a silent cry perhaps. In spite of the misery and fear Maki was in, He was perplexed and somewhat relieved by one thing, that his heart was troubled by the girl's plight. 
Granted, it might have just been the pity that might occur in any virtuous male's heart at the sight of an injustice done to such a vulnerable and violated member of the opposite sex. Unlike having no feeling for his adoptive parents' plight, he at least felt something for this girl. The slave girl's existence also indicated that there was a high probability that there were other humans imprisoned somewhere within the mountain. If he could achieve their liberation, they might could assist Maki with his difficult task at hand. The next day, the wolf hunter left out alongside the other dogs as they went to go about their various tasks, and as soon as he could, Maki ducked out and returned to his private chamber to get some much-needed rest. And just as he had the day before, when the cook returned to the throne room to feast and sleep, he joined in with them to do some more observing. A few moments at the gathering before the king cook, a commotion interrupted the dogs' feasting. Two cook soldiers brought in another, who had a greasy face, the fur around his mouth matted and glistening. The captors yowled something in their wolf language, the captured dog looking guiltier as the seconds unfolded. The king growled and clicked his teeth. The two soldiers grabbed the disobedient dog with their jaws and pulled it forward closer, the latter whimpering now. The chief cook howled some declaration and with its right paw pulled a lever on the contraption down. A huge flame shot out and ignited the condemned wolf. The soldiers let go of the screaming, cooking creature so as not to get lit themselves. It stumbled around, howling, rubbing its burning face on the rock floor before finally stumbling into the stream. The two soldiers took their cue from a quick bark from the king and proceeded to rip out the throat of the obviously disobedient dog. The smoldering corpse was drug out of the hall and the king made some noise that summoned the woman to him. She massaged the chief cook's head as if he had just got done working out some complicated civilization-changing calculation. Makimiam added this new information to his ever-growing intelligence report. The next day, the young man wandered around the caves until he found a small doorway that led out on a pleasant cliff terrace. The previous tenant's stone table and stools were still there, although obviously having stood there unused ever since the cook invasion. The outside mountain air was welcomed into Maki's lungs, and he decided that this should be his new base of operations. In spite of the cook's preference to stay indoors, the wolf hunter's instinct told him he would be wise to find a hidey hole. Moving around the outdoor furniture, Maki in time had made himself a hidden barricade of sorts. Though the structure was not the most secure fortress, Maki still found the rest here more peaceful than inside the mountain. And so he began to work out what he should do next in his mission to overthrow the Cook Kingdom. Maki's meditation was interrupted by a commotion coming from within the mountain. This was followed by a scene of a cook pulling out a young boy in his jaw onto the terrace. Before Maki could consider what was about to happen and what his reaction would be, the wolf shot his head down into the child's throat and jerked up, bringing spewing blood and a mouthful of flesh and bones with it. The child choked on its own blood while watching the dog enjoy smacking on what had been his throat. Rage and indignation filled the wolf hunter and, without thinking, grabbed his nearest accessible weapon, his fire flint, which was sharpened into a deadly knife. The stone fired from Maki's hiding place, burying itself into the cook body. The dog yelped in pain and stumbled off of the cliff and down into a crag of rocks. 
Maki appeared on the bloody scene just to catch the life leave the boy's eyes. Wanting to bury the child properly, the wolf hunter resisted at admitting that this would only probably alert the other wolves to his presence, and so just rolled the human body off the cliff edge to join its murderer. The wolf hunter looked away from the crag bottom as quick as he could, not wanting any more images of disfigured human bodies stored in his memory, but couldn't help catching a glimpse of the dog's blood and fur covering some more toppled statues of the Kernum civilization. Two realities presented itself at that moment to the wolf hunter. First, without his flint, he no longer had any ability to start a fire quickly if he had wanted to. Secondly, although the murdered child could have just been stolen from a village, it reiterated the aforementioned possibility that there were other humans being held captive within the caverns, but that they probably only consisted of children or other very young. Counting on that it would be best to deal with the cook before trying to deal with what could be several noisy crying children, Maki decided to try to put into place one plan of action, this requiring him a few days of travel within and without Kernum. A few days later, the hunter had returned to his observation point in the throne room to wait for his plan to hopefully unfold. Maki waited and waited, but what he had hoped to transpire did not. Finally, a handful of lesser wolves ran into the throne room. They barked and whistled something urgent to the chief, of which Maki Miam couldn't understand, but he suspected he knew what they were saying. They had seen a group of unusually meaty humans creeping up the bark-covered mountain. The king growled his commands for the top soldiers to attack the invaders, which caused a cacophony of clicks and pats of exiting cook feet on the cave floors echoing throughout the mountain. The royal guard dogs remained by their ruler's side, though they erect at the potential of oncoming danger. Regarding what was happening outside the mountain, the day before Maki had quietly visited a few of the surrounding villages. Sure enough, he witnessed all the evidence of the cult that the council had told him about. Carved figurines, sketched faces, and proverbs etched into stone and wood alike all in praise of the noble wolf. Still, he stopped at a couple of random village public areas, telling all who would listen about how he had it on good information that a great wolf killer was on his way to exterminate the cook. Of course, this caused a buzz of outrage among many, who immediately organized themselves into expeditions that would go to defend their sacred dogs. And then there were those men who concluded that if successful, the death of the wolves would leave the treasures that had belonged to the previous tenants of Kernum free for the picking. Maki reminded himself as he lay hidden in the throne room that none of the information spread among the surrounding villages wasn't untrue. He couldn't help it if men's inability to accept the cruelty of brother nature or their own greed had led them into a tangle with the deadly wolves. But the ploy was Maki's way of not only bringing the cult into contact with their gods, but also employing their assistance in his mission to take out the cook once and for all. Besides, these villagers would have surely been targeted by the devil dogs soon enough. At least that's how the young man justified luring these men into danger. The wolf hunter gazed over at the slave woman, who lay wide-eyed on the hall floor. While the dogs had slept the day before, Maki had placed half-hit a sword and dagger in the stream right next to where she was allowed to sleep. But either from not getting the hint or possibly madness, the woman just stared in the direction of the items in the water, or possibly at nothing. Maki's heart sunk. His whole plan had hinged on the woman at least trying to kill the king cook, 
at which he'd attempt to take out the guards. It was a weak strategy, the wolf hunter knew, but if he lived to be chastised for his lack of a contingency plan, he would lamely fall back on the incredible disadvantage he'd been put in by the village's councils. Accepting defeat, Maki now considered seriously trying to come up with a solid plan to rescue his parents from the council. These men would be a sense to defeat compared with the cook. The wolves surely must have made quick work of the villagers because the soldiers were already beginning to return, which delivered a sick feeling to the young man's heart. The distraction the wolf hunter had hoped to take advantage of had been wasted. But before the young hunter got to lament the waste of human life he'd orchestrated, a pitiful sight presented itself. In amongst the returning soldiers were a group of mostly young human boys and a few girls being herded along the hallways and into the royal chamber. Maki raced along as if he too had just returned from the fight. Once in, the soldiers presented the captured human young to the bloated chief, he nodding, barely interested in the army's victory. The king cook was in one of his moods, which all the other wolves knew well. He was ready to play with his current human woman. The soldiers herded the children out, Maki falling in line with the caravan, his stomach turning at what was about to happen to the pitiful slave girl. After about a quarter kilometer along an ascending hallway, the children were pushed into the sunlight, which, if it hadn't been on the precipice of a deadly drop-off, would have been akin to the paradise terrace of a mountain demi-deity. There were rows of bark-padded benches, the remnants of multiple flower pots, and a stream passing around one half of the open space with a wooden device steering the water down into the mountain. Fearing what the cook intended to do to the children, but also aware that his disguise would be exposed in the sunlight, Maki stayed just inside the cave opening, his mind again grasping for some kind of plan to save the innocent beings from certain death. Noticing from across the open area a giant bowl with a half-burnt wick poking its head out of its center, it dawned on the young man where they were at, the previous civilization's amphitheater. But again, before Maki could parse out any more useful thoughts, a wooden gate on an opening in a jutting rock face was opened, a cook soldier making a commanding bark of some sort. Out came another army, though of a more adorable disposition, puppies. The young wolf pups ran toward the children, the latter backing up against another bark-padded rock face as far as they could push themselves. But the young dogs advanced, they attacking their targets with so many licks of their tongues and waggings of their tails. The frightened children wiped the tears from their faces, slowly replacing them with smiles and laughter. This playtime was allowed to continue for about half an hour before the adult cook herded the children and pups back into the mountain. Maki followed until all arrived at what seemed to be a great dining hall containing other dirtier children and their apparent cook pets. Again, there was a door present that they could have just closed and locked, but instead, guard dogs were posted at the entrance. Maybe the cook didn't understand the way of knobs and keyholes. Surely their king must have, but for some reason he hadn't passed this knowledge on to his minions. Maki returned to his temporary terrace home, and out of indecision as to how to accomplish the enormous task ahead, he decided to do something that probably contributed nothing to the mission, save clearing his mind, exploring the outside of Kernum. He crept around the narrow ledges that ran off from the balcony until, at some point, the wolf hunter found another small clearing, though this one had no door or signs of previous life. It was deep into a crag enclosed from both sides, so save for any passing creatures with wings, nothing with even the best eyes could ever know Maki was now standing in. It was the safest he'd felt since he had left home, and so the young man decided to lie down and sleep deeply.
Waking up some hours later with his face on the ground, Maki realized he was staring at an unusual sight hidden within a rock shelf. Some random items from a spool of thread to an arrowhead to a chisel were set inside the shelf. Some useful things, in fact, which gave Maki some encouragement. But what the wolf hunter couldn't tell was a good or bad omen was the painting on the wall within the shelf. It was the first time that Maki had actually seen the rock in good light that the mountain was actually made of because the bark here had been peeled away from the stone. The stone was a dark gray. That was fascinating, of course, but what was more captivating was what was pictured on the bare rock, a sequence of events. It began with humans looking wild-eyed, nubs sprouting from their heads and in time becoming good-sized horns. The last few scenes showed these frenzied people wielding daggers and other small weapons, puncturing the heads of other humans, producing fountains of blood. The story ended with the attackers being flung into an abyss, some clinging onto rock edges in the chasm walls. With the common saying echoing regarding the enemy of enemies being at times useful, Maki got up, deciding to search for this abyss to see if any of these demon men still lived. The young man wandered throughout the mountain in his wolf disguise, trotting along the passages that seemed to either descend or be filled with cooler air. The mountain being enormous, this took a few days before any ground seemed to be gained. The sign that Maki was finally on the correct path was the appearance in one tunnel where the bark had been peeled away and the familiar images of the horned men began to appear on the rock walls. Given the lack of wolves seemingly down in this area, the young man gave up his disguise and jogged upright, much more comfortably, down the tunnel. The images became larger and more grotesque the further Maki traveled, as if the walls were pleading with anyone coming this way to rethink their decision. Finally, the now demon-human hunter arrived at a door, this one actually closed. Not sure if this would be the last foolish thing he ever performed, Maki undid the latch, and by pulling open the door, was greeted by an ever colder thrush of air, in addition to the smell of decay. There was no light beyond the door, and so Maki stepped back and with his new chisel tool detached a handful of stone flicker flowers from their mountain ground. Once past the door, Maki got the sinking feeling with the realization that the flicker flowers were illuminating nothing save the ground beneath his feet, and that for only a few meters before, a distinct line of pitch black brought the path to an abrupt stop. If there were any walls or ceiling in this place, they were so far away to be seen, much less gotten to. This was, without a doubt, the abyss shown in the shelf pictures, the young man surmised. Feeling around with his hands produced no more insight for Maki, save confirming that there was nothing beyond the short ledge there. So even if there were some terrible creatures still living down in the dark, the chances of them being able to be gotten to were slim. Feeling that this venture had all been a dead end, in figurative language, and in fact, Maki sighed, discouraged. But before he turned around to go seek out another solution, the young man decided to perform one more act that used to bring him so much satisfaction as a young boy from the top of buildings and high tree limbs. He spit into the abyss. His ears tweaked to catch the sound of the splat. It never came. Concede into the darkness that it was without a doubt a larger foe than he could conquer, he began to step back and through the door. But then, a great flash illuminated a small part of the cliff wall the door was cut into. Whizzing around, Maki's eyes fell upon a bizarre creature clinging to a rock wall across the great chasm there. After his eyes adjusted and focused, the young man realized he wasn't looking at a monster or even a demonic human, but just an ordinary human 
whose face was dirtied and twisted by misery and time perhaps. With one hand it was both holding a torch made of a human leg bone, with a human head fixed and lit with a flame, while also grasping a jut in the wall. Its other arm looked half-severed, its rotten remains swinging back and forth. Did you come here to mock me? This pitiful person asked. No, sir, Maki replied, still trying to figure out who he was staring at. But I must ask, who is your friend there, the one whose head is serving as a lamp? The wretched human looked at his torch and shook his head. That's just Wook. He tried to kill me, and so I let him atone for his actions by letting me use his skull for a torch. Then the dirty human shot an angry look at the young man. You're mocking me, aren't you? Maki shrugged. Not on purpose, but that's not why I came down here to find you. You came looking for me? The man asked almost childlike. Yes, I think you might be able to help me. The man's dirty face perked up. Why, I'm sure I can help you. I'm an unfettered worthy being with lots of insight and passions just waiting to be consulted. You have the honor, sir, of being the first to seek my guidance. My fortune seems to be turning around then, if what you say is true. But I must ask first, how did you end up down here in this state? The man looked perplexed and then smiled excitedly. You're not Kernum. Maki wisely shook his head. Do they know you're down here? No, I was able to sneak past what few are still left, the wolf hunter answered, thinking of the slave girl at least as one whom, in a way, was still one left. What do you mean, what few are still left? The young man now wondered how he should shape his answer, deciding that if he was dealing with a devil, he might want to use the devil's preferred means, a bit of truth with a smidgen of untruth. The Kernum are not what they used to be. They suffer by the hands of their own folly. I could use some help finishing them off. The man on the rock nearly leapt off into the nothing. He was so excited by Maki's words. Justice. Brother Nature has vindicated us. Can you tell me how this turn of events transpired? I will, the wolf hunter agreed. But still, I would like to hear your story from your lips first. I know the Kernum's version, of course, but it reeks with revisionism and... I bet it does. The man cackled in such total joy. He went to do something with his bad hand, but as that the arm that it was attached to was only hanging on to the rest of his body by some stiff sinew, whatever his wish had been, his hand could not grant it. This inability seemed to dispel whatever emotion triggered the scowl, and the man softened his stance. But the man did let go of the rock wall, which made Maki's heart sink momentarily. This only produced a quick slide down onto a more spacious and comfortable ledge a few meters down. Once there, the dirty man pushed over some half-eaten pieces of men and crossed his legs like a sage and began his tale. It started with a plant. I resided with everyone else up there, and on my cliff terrace, I was trying to grow sturry flowers. But these enobugs kept attacking the plant when I wasn't looking. I lost out to the insects, and so my flowers died. But it made me realize something that was being mirrored in my own life at that time. My fellow Kernum were no doubt an accomplished civilization, but they had a rigidity of attitudes on certain topics. And if I ever should express a different view from theirs, they began quoting examples from our history of other people who had expressed similar sentiments and how it had led to everything from self-inflicted misery to deaths of fellow Kernum. I didn't like the way they made me feel, like I was not quite fully Kernum. Were they threatening to expel you from the mountain? No, 
Tolerance was actually one of their dogmas, so they claimed. But I know they would have been happier had I exiled myself or just jumped off my terrace. Some were intent on changing my mind. A few shunned me, and others still came to visit me, but just guided our chats around my so-called heresies. At some point, I got a visit from a woman named Clilco that I had seen around but had never spoke with. She revealed that there were others in the mountain that thought like me, and that they came together in secret to encourage each other in our pariahhood. So I attended a secret meeting of these kindred disenfranchised, and it was wonderful. We freely shared our peculiar thinkings with each other and learned from each other as well. And this all brought me peace for a little while. Outside of the gatherings, I began to resent the majority of Kernum and their oppressive thought processes. They judged me with their speech and silence both, and I couldn't even defend myself. I was not a credible witness to my defense. So at the next flower gathering, I suggested that we should make our existence proudly known to counter the oppressive homogeneity of our civilization. The others agreed, and so we began having occasional processions through the tunnels, proclaiming our independence and voicing some of our ideas, plus organizing open parties on our Kernum Day of Chill. It created quite a buzz at first, the mountain statesmen having to make official proclamations as to why we were incorrect in our various opinions and behaviors. Some curious onlookers came to view our spectacles, many leaving in disgust, others joining in freely with our celebration of flowering. That word my contribution to the gathering's lexicon. I also dubbed these outside our sub-society as bugs, which also was gladly adapted by my fellow free-thinking flowers. But after the initial shock wore off, most of the rest of the Kernum just ignored us. For some reason, that bizarre hybrid of dismissal and leaving us to do as we pleased infuriated us even more. We decided to bring our gatherings outside of our lower chambers and into the public terraces, the mountaintop amphitheater, and even the great public hall. They couldn't ignore us now and had to produce clumsy retorts to our challenges of when we confronted them. I could see their own hearts were troubled by why they weren't taking our beliefs as their own. Again, the bugs tolerate our presence in this new capacity for a while until I voiced to my brethren that while the ancient Kernan writings were allowed to exist, we would never be fully accepted by our fellow citizens. So some of our more zealous members and I grabbed the history and wisdom scrolls, dumped them in the great lamp atop the mountain, and lit them aflame. It was so simple and easy to forever banish into smoke and ash the chief obstacle that stood in our way of being the dominant culture within Kernum. Our oppressed people were finally free, and we flowers threw a celebration in the amphitheater, as such a moment in history deserved. But our flowering hearts were only briefly at peace. The rest of Kernum no longer vocally opposed us, but anyone could see that they were terrified of us. And one can't possibly be respected when one is feared. Something was still left to be eliminated, and then in time, it occurred to me what it was. Without hesitation, I called our free-thinking people together and told them to follow me to the public hall. We flowers arrived, and where there had been some muffled whispers among the Kernum gathered there was now silence and hard stares. I marched right up to Chieftain Mra, pulled out my granite club, and bashed his skull in with no warning, hesitation, or regret. With a sharpened spoon, I forced it into the mushy mess that had been Mra's head and scooped out the part of the brain that I knew condemned me and my brethren. I stared in wonder at this insignificant piece of glob 
that had done so much to make me feel like a worthless human for so long. I suppose that this was the one expression of our autonomy that the Kernum bug majority could not tolerate or cope with, because they immediately rose up and began trying to kill us with every means possible. We flowers fought back, of course, and it was a terrible pointless battle, as all civil wars are, I'm sure. Outnumbered, we of course had to fall back or be completely exterminated. The couple score of us still alive retreated to the furthest, darkest chambers of the mountain, which is where we are now. The bugs followed as far as here but decided to let us live for some reason, except in our own confined civilization, I suppose. They destroyed the bridge that used to stand between me and where you are now, which forced us to live the best we could along these ledges and crags. We flowers still celebrated our efforts and integrity and told ourselves that one day the Kernum above would destroy themselves with their blind devotion to their so-called wisdoms and histories, which was code for bigotry and oppression of thought. We were certain that we would be the civilization that would outlive them and we would be celebrated in the hearts of all free-thinking people everywhere at some point in time. We flowers, in fact, adapted decently to our new home here, learning to survive off the bizarre stone-sucking vegetation and blind creatures that wandered down here. I think we sustained ourselves some in our getting to live in total freedom from judgment and disagreement. All the same, the thought that the bugs were still up there ignoring us gave me a few sleepless nights. I fantasizing about removing all the globs in their brains that put us down here. But then something very unjust and perplexing happened. Clicko had been doing one of the things with her body, which the bugs sneered at her over, and suddenly that part of her body began to liquefy and dripped away into the abyss. Clilco understandably freaked out and began cursing that part of her body, making her feel ashamed. Then she began rubbing that part against the sharp edge of the rock wall until the defective flesh was all gone. But that caused her to quickly bleed out, and I'll never forget how in silence she rolled into the dark below. Others of us flowers began having similar symptoms, ranging from the physical to the mental. Our bodies had taken on the role of the bugs in that they were hampering our flowering with their condemnations. Every person found various parts of their bodies in rebellion, the more horrific occurrences being when some began using sharpened stones to dig at the parts of their hearts and brains that were giving them grief. With that grisly scene all around, it was difficult not to wonder if we flowers had made some great errors in rejecting all the ways of the bugs above. Without thinking, I muttered as much, which brought the wrath of my brothers and sisters against me, they screaming that I now was making them feel alienated. I had to fight for my life as they attempted to cut my mouth from my head, which is why I look like this. I guess I don't have to tell you that it was I who was ultimately the last human not having fallen to my death. Maki nodded and contemplated the epic story. He offered, I'm sorry, this injustice has been done to you. Still, my mind must know one thing. If the Kernum above offered you a release from this place, would you attempt to return to a coexistence among them? The man scoffed. Sure, I would live in harmony with the bugs just long enough for me to recover from the terrible hardship they put upon me. But to be clear, their way of life and thinking must be eradicated. Maybe the Kernum curse could be bred out of their children's minds, given the right circumstances. But the only hope for those matured monsters is for their bodies to be crushed into meat for the new gardens, where my uninhibited words will blossom and bear the fruit that will grow across all lands, strangling all poisonous ideas contrary 
to those bestowed upon me. That is what Brother Nature has told me is my destiny. Well, that said, what is your name, sir? I had another name at birth, but that was while in captivity of bug repression. The ironic freedom found in this prison down here has named me Daggerut. Okay, Daggerut. I will return soon, and we shall help each other grow this garden you speak of. The maimed man on the cliff wall, for a split second, lost his triumphant look, replacing it with suspicion. I have to find a way to get you out of here, of course, Maki explained. A dirty smile returned to Daggerut, and with that, the young man left the pitiful man in his abyss. idea occurred to Maki, which prompted him to work his way back up to the amphitheater. It was empty now, and so the young man could examine it better by trotting and climbing around the area. One thing that had stuck in his mind, that with such an enormous lamp, there had to have been fuel for it at one point. Sure enough, Maki found a storage area within a decent-sized crack of one of the walls, which contained several barrels of what smelled like a kind of kerosene. Looking at the barrels and then the stream pouring into Kernum, the solution to his task seemed obvious, save for the fact that Maki had lost the ability to produce the one essential element. In spite of this, with a great surrendering of his mind to a great hope and a feeble prayer shot up at the Maker, the young man intended to return back into the mountain to facilitate at least the parts of the plan that was within his ability. But an erect figure stood at the entrance into the mountain, a sword and a dagger in hand. It was the filthy slave woman. Are you here to destroy them? The pitiful-looking creature asked, with fleas and lice busying themselves around her hardened eyes. Maki wasn't sure where the girl's loyalties laid, and so answered by asking, By them, whom do you mean? The dogs, of course, she answered, not giving away any sign of emotions one way or another. Maki decided it was useless to conceal what he was up to, and so nodded. You're going against the will of the planet. The Kernum were destroyed for some sin against Brother Nature, and now the surrounding villages are being judged and convicted for their sins as well. How do you know that's the case? The woman looked at Maki as if he were a lunatic. It's obvious that if they were destroyed by the cook, these people did something terribly evil. So... The wolf hunter asked, observing some blood smeared and dried on the woman's thigh. You committed this sin as well? The woman looked off. I don't know what my sins were, but I anticipate it will be revealed to me before I die for them. My suffering is bringing me back to my natural state, which I must have strayed from, I am certain. The young man angled his head and shrugged, indicating he felt her assessment was a matter of interpretation. But then some idea sparked up in his brain. Actually, I... I'm executing the will of the planet. How is attempting to kill the planet's emissaries doing what it wishes? The woman shot back without being tripped. You're correct. These creatures were initially chosen to carry out the commands of Brother Nature. But the dogs were allowed free will as much as humans are, and with their great grant of power have unfortunately been abusing it for their own advantages. Wolves are meant to be noble, sleek creatures. But the king of the cook has distorted his nobility and his subjects by imitating the worst traits of humanity. So I'm here to set things right. The woman seemed to be considering the validity of Maki's scheme. So he added, I'm also here to apologize on behalf of Brother Nature for your recent misery. You unfortunately have been caught up in the tangle of Chief Cook's disobedience, not from your own. The woman's eyes 
softened some, revealing for a second her true age. How do I know you're not a deceiver? Well, if I successfully defeat the cook, you'll know I spoke the truth. The planet would not allow me victory if it were not its will, don't you think? The girl's face, while still dirty and bloody, now looked to be something that could be wiped clean. How do you intend to accomplish this task? The wolf hunter looked at the barrels he had moved over by the now redirected stream. The woman didn't seem to understand, so he explained, I'm converting the mountain stream into fuel. I just don't have a way to light it. The girl contemplated and understood what Maki was up to. She abruptly proclaiming, I will provide the fire. The young man nodded while becoming drawn to the girl's gaze. She was rapidly appearing less like a dead skull with skin pulled across it, and now more like someone's sister or daughter. Delivering her near final words to Maki, she said in a beautiful, unstrained voice, Thank you for coming here and setting us free. The girl turned to go, leaving the young man's heart feeling heavy, like he was going to regret for the rest of his life if he didn't act on impulse. Wait, he protested, her leaving. I want to know your name. The girl, whose face was hardening again, turned her head back and shook it, the dirty hair sweeping in sticky, staggered clumps. There's no one in the world that needs to know what happened to me here. And with that, she disappeared into Kernum. Maki raced into the passage after her, but because he had hesitated and also had been blinded by the light of day, could not see where it was she had disappeared to. Letting go for the time being of wanting to talk more with the slave girl, the young man proceeded to put into place the rest of his plan. Makamiam first raced to the larger doors leading out of Kernum near the ground level and pulled them shut. He, of course, had to give up the wolf ruse while up on two legs and thus had to fight and kill many dogs who realized the hunter was not one of them. This allowed a few of his last attackers to get a few painful bites and tears into his body before he brought them down. The young man was losing blood here and there, but had no time to tend to the wounds properly. He settled on just cutting away some strips of hide from his defeated spasming foes, patched himself up, and continued along with his mission. Next, the young man returned down to Daggerroot's prison chasm and, tossing a rope across the abyss, assisted the dirty man into swinging over into freedom. Now listen, Daggerroot. Brother Nature has given me explicit orders, so if you want to perform your part well, you must follow these instructions without deviation. The dirty man was so excited he nodded vigorously at the wolf hunter's imploring. Okay, you tell me that if you were trying to slip away from this mountain without the kernum above knowing, how would you go about doing it? That's no problem. I know an exit that's inaccessible to the bugs. Wonderful, Maki exclaimed, producing some parchment and a piece of charcoal. Draw me a map and then wait for me there. Daggerroot eagerly drew the map in relation to where they were then, the wolf hunter studying it closely, recognizing some of the standout twists he had traveled through already. What's going to happen? The dirty man eagerly asked. Brother Nature has sent me an army of wolves to help me punish the Kernum for its sins. I won't be able to control the dogs. They so ravenous for justice. So I need a way for you, me, and a few other of our brethren to escape. Daggerroot's knees sprang up in a kind of almost leaping dance that caused his dead limb to nearly break off. What a glad day! Indeed, Maki agreed. And before disappearing, bid, I'll see you at the meeting place. The two parting ways, Maki next returned to the amphitheater and started the river of fuel flowing. After the last barrel was emptied, he then sped to the chamber where the children were guarded. In a matter of moments, the older dogs guarding over them were choking on their own blood 
or fighting against the broken bones in their chest for air. The children and pups were understandably initially frightened, but Maki let his kind eyes be seen in the low light. My friends, I'm taking you home. The children most recently kidnapped quickly stood ready to leave, while those who couldn't remember never not being watched over by the dogs took a little more coaxing. Finding the eldest one among them, a boy named Ahafi, he gave them map and instructed him to lead the children to a chamber just before the passage where Dagarut presumably waited. Maki should have just fled with the children, he chided himself, but his heart was heavy for the slave girl, either out of pity or affection, and he was determined to bring her out of Kurnam as well. By the time the young man reached the throne room, the dogs were pacing to and fro and howling with confusion and suspicion at the arrival of the fuel via the stream. The royal guards, desperate at appearing competent to their king, had nearly gotten into the pungent strange liquid trying to attack it or scare it off that the fumes was causing their noses and eyes to burn. The king cook himself seemed only mildly concerned, so great was his arrogance. But as more and more fuel flowed in, even he couldn't help but wonder if something troublesome was about to befall them. The slave girl had been standing by the king's side, she stroking his fur, her eyes also now irritated some, but containing no confusion, only determination. Maki kept blinking his eyes in some vain hope of getting the girl's attention, he wanting to let her know that they could exact this revenge together. But either from the fumes or just blind rage, the slave girl moved away from the king, walked into the stream, and lowered herself under. The guards stood by confused as to what was happening while she emerged from the oily fluid. Unable to open her eyes, she instinctively exited the stream and moved past the throne until she reached the flame-producing contraption. It was then that Maki realized what the girl was planning. Before the wolf hunter could think of what to do, the girl flipped on the machine, it producing its fire and almost instantly catching her whole person aflame. Retarded by years of gluttony and overconfidence, the slug of a king gave the slave girl a little serious resistance when she fell upon him. Both the lit woman and the dog screamed in terrible pain, though the woman's wailing seemed to be peppered with laughter. The guard dogs leapt back towards their chieftain, and after trying to pull the woman off their king and getting burnt mouths because of it, they tried patting out the fiery human dog tangle with their paws. This is when Maki leapt into action. He's sprinting across the hall, and once up at the tussle between the girl and the guards, he using his leather gloves studded with nails and broken glass to puncture and slice until the soldiers were fountains of spitting blood. Before the young man was able to next look for the slave girl, a blast of light and heat exploded, knocking him back from the stream. The girl had entered the river of fuel on her own volition, which sent the fire running both directions out of the great hall. And the girl wasn't done. She now ran blindly toward the hall exit and disappeared into the passageways. Maki pulled himself together but couldn't help taking in one last glance at the king cook. The flaming slug squirmed on the stone floor, his flesh hissing as loud as he was wailing. It was the end of an age, the young man told himself, the kind of event that would end up being sung about in pubs and told to children by their parents at night around the hearth. But the wolf hunter still had a hand in how this story would end, and so with that, at the back of his mind, he trotted out of the great hall as more of the cooking king's minions rushed in to investigate the commotion. Maki at first tried to track the slave girl by the wisps of smoke she had left behind, but it was the howling and flashes of burning dogs that made the task at first seem all the more easier. 
After coming to one fork in the passages, though, and seeing that both right and left ways contained cooks aflame, the young man finally conceded that there was now no way to tell which had been lit by the girl, and which by the burning fuel streams that was pumping fire throughout the inside of the mountain. Also, what had formerly been the miracle of the bark covering inside and out of the mountain was now quickly becoming a liability, it beginning in spots to smolder and burn. On accepting that the girl's life was not his to save, Maki made his way back to the children. When the hunter arrived to where the children and the wolf pups waited for him, because of his tears for the slave girl, he said nothing, only waving them to follow behind him. Not a few minutes from that point, the crowd found Daggerut, the man containing few virtues at this point, by Maki's reckoning, save one, patience. The dirty man's face initially lit up at the arrival of the wolf hunter, but darkened at the sight of all the children. Remember how you said that possibly the children of the bugs could be corrected? Daggerut nodded. You must re-educate him when we get out of here. The dirty man considered the scenario, finally allowed a ravenous smile, and nodded in agreement. Okay then, Maki implored. Get us out of here, Daggerut. The dirty man in time stopped his hobbling at what looked like was the end of the passage. It was difficult to tell with all the corpses laying in the way. Judging by the way the dead lay, Maki guessed everyone there had been mauled or eaten by wolves some time ago. Their guide chuckled some in pride before commanding Maki, There's a door beyond this justice. Let's make a path. And so began the gruesome task performed by Maki and a few of the older boys of removing the bones and petrified remains of some of whom were probably the kin of the children there in the passage. What Daggerut had claimed was soon proven true by the eventual appearance of a door behind all the piles of bodies. Maki couldn't help but notice all the scratches dug into the wood, presumably from the hands of some of the dead there around them. But another concern waved away that horror quick enough. Daggerut, the door is locked. That's no problem. I had the key. How? I, of course, locked it and swallowed it before I began my attack on the Great Hall those many years ago. I had anticipated the cowardly bugs would try to flee from this exit to preserve their virus-riddled brains and the oppressive ideologies contained within them. What I didn't anticipate is our failure to get very far with our purge of the mountain. That is, until Brother Nature sent yourself. Daggerut produced the key from a pouch made from one of his fallen abyss friends, which introduced a rancid smell of old bowels into the chamber. The door unlocked, Maki began ushering the children and their cubs through the opening that promised much with its humid air. As the last little one passed, Maki motioned to Daggerut, out of some kind of show of respect. The wretched man shook his head vigorously. I must stay and wipe out the rest of the despicable bugs. But the dogs will be thorough enough. Besides, they will certainly take you as one of the Kernum. Not a problem. They are agents of Brother Nature and will recognize that I am on their side. Maki nodded, both at Daggerut and at his own conscience, arguing that he had given the dirty man a chance to walk away from his own doom, and so left the self-righteous man with, Thank you for your help, sir. I may come to visit you in your new kingdom someday when I can. 
I welcome it, Dagger replied, while producing a piece of skin, probably, from one of his fellow flowers and handing it to Maki. The young man studied the skin while trying not to hold it too tightly, considering it was human skin, and observed a crude drawing of a flower with a knife blade for its roots. This is my signet, if you will, Dagger Root proclaimed. I want you to tell everyone about my accomplishments, philosophy, and show them this symbol. It will help the whole second-hand world. Makimiam lied by nodding while the dirty-faced man pulled out his stone spoon weapon. Be sure to bring the children so that old Daggerut can reset their minds. And with a dirty face pregnant with hope for vindication and revenge, the crazed man disappeared back into the darkness of the mountain. Of course, Makimiam had no intention of ever trusting the madman with anyone's children, regardless if they were those of the fleckless men who held his parents in captivity which brought the wolf hunter to a much-needed time of decision. As he and his crowd of liberated little ones and their pet wolves exited Kernum and into a maze of briar with barely enough space to exit without getting pricked by a thorn or hundreds of, just giving the innocent children back to their delusional villages seemed a kind of sentence of doom for the former. Thus the temptation came up again of just finding where his parents were being held, slaughtering their immediate captors, extracting and then distributing the children to childless couples throughout the region. But of course, this would probably lead to all kinds of new heartbreak for everyone involved, especially when the childless villages would inevitably come to claim their brood from the new parents. So Maki compromised with the extremes in his head and looked back one more time at the burning mountain with its occasional spewing of a flaming devil dog from its many mouths. Three days later, the caravan arrived on the bottom steps of the Makerweb convent. When a wide-eyed but smiling head abbotus arrived to greet Maki and the children in tow, the wolf hunter simply asked, Can you and your order watch these little ones for a few days? And while you do so, can you also try to extract the idiocy and greed of their parents and replace it with wisdom and contentment? The abbotus at first looked a little bewildered, but remembered a proverb about always being prepared to catch babies falling from the sky and simply nodded with a smile ready for a challenge. The woman was waving everyone in and up the stairs when she thought to ask the young man whether he had been talking about the children or the wolves, or both. But Makimiam had already disappeared into the forest. Two days later, Maki arrived back home only to find most of the orchard looking haggard from neglect and not a soul in or around the house. He finally spied a placard nailed to one of the burnt trees, instructing him to come to a certain island within the Sioux Lake when his task at Kernum was finished. Three evenings later, the young man arrived on the shore of the enormous lake with the mountainous island in its center. Wasted no time, Makimian rented a small boat from a fisherman and in a few hours had found his way up the mountain. Crouching on a rock shelf, the wolf hunter assessed the relatively small center of the mountain bowl which seemed to lay lower than the water level of the Sioux, and contained only a stone building and a well. There were a few guards milling about, and so Maki finalized his plans, which were simply to subdue the guards, liberate his parents from the building, and let their captors know where their children were. With a couple of cloth-covered stones, the young man was able to stun the visible men into unconsciousness, acquired the correct keys from his sleeping victims, and let himself quietly into the building. There was complete darkness inside and a kind of damp cold. 
Waiting for his eyes to adjust with help from the fading daylight, peeping through the cracks in the walls, Maki squatted down to fill the floor. It was just moist dirt, but more importantly, something was moving in an inhuman manner in the room. Before his instinct could communicate to his legs to back out of the building, something became intertwined around his arms and legs, holding him like chains. Steps behind him brought lights with them, revealing that he was being restrained by several snakes. They all somehow grafted into the branches from a leafless tree there in the center of the four walls. Son, said a voice of one of the village representatives from behind the young man. We may not allow ourselves to kill wolves, but we're not completely helpless or stupid. Maki couldn't see who or how many souls were behind him. He too busy in a struggle to not let the snake strangle him. We're glad you finally burned that whole city of demons down, but we suspect you tricked many of our men and their children into walking into their deaths beforehand. A bit of revenge, we suppose, for kidnapping your parents? Or a lesson, perhaps? Maki didn't answer. He tried to keep his lips pursed while a snake fought to separate them. One of our villages lost a whole generation of men and children because of your vindictiveness. The widows, their infants, and the crippled will have to be absorbed into other towns. The man behind Makimiam then told some unseen soldiers, presumably to leave the two, assuring them that he was in no danger. Then came the council member's strange need for his captive's empathy, which he delivered in a whisper. As you can see, we need a sacrifice to appease the grief and anger of our devastated people. You will be offered up as the cause of all our troubles of recent, and summarily executed. Also, and I truly regret it has to be this way, but I'm going to need you to keep silent. The council's role, well, my role, since I'm the one who suggested hiring you in the first place, needs to be kept out of this. Again, I think you can understand. Our people losing faith in its elders and leadership would be more devastating than the Cook's raids ever would have been. Don't worry, I'm not going to cut your tongue out like those barbaric kings in other lands. We have a snake branch on here that still has its fangs, and its particular venom only numbs and causes swelling in its prey. We'll allow it to latch onto your tongue, which after the initial puncture, you'll feel nothing. Actually, it's quite pleasurable from what some of our scientists tell me. My parents, Maki finally got out. Yes, well, they're here down in the well, which is relatively free of water at the moment. But again, I must offer my regret and beg for your understanding in what must happen to them. Their knowledge must also be buried in silence, which will achieve by allowing some of Sue's water in with them. Again, from what I understand, drowning isn't a static phenomenon, so... Your children are still alive, and I've hidden them away. The council member came around into Maki's field of vision. He specifically searched in the young man's eyes for signs of deceit. The young man recognized the man's face from that night they had come to their home. He had done most of the talking, Maki remembered. The spokesman sighed, somewhat annoyed, and stated, still in a whisper, Since I foolishly reveal what of my plans must transpire, I realize I have no leverage over you to tell me the children's location. So, will you just tell me for the children's sake? Unlike the two of us, they're innocent in all this. Let my parents go, and yes, I will tell you. The official shook his head and reverted his voice to its normal volume. This cannot be. And without another word, the village leader left the building and barked some orders to his men. Maki heard the creaking of rope being pulled, followed by the screams of his parents. His dad's cries went silent while his mother's wailing became worse. The council member returned before Maki and reported, Your father has nobly put your mother up on his shoulders to keep her from drowning, but he will go limp as soon as he trades water for the quickly aging air in his lungs. 
Tell me where the children are, and I will cover the well so you won't have to hear the last sounds of your mother dying echoing around in your skull for the rest of your few days. The wolf hunter had finally been defeated, shook his head at how everything had led to this disastrous end, and quickly told the man where the convent was located. The official nodded apologetically and left the room to fulfill his promise. Maki began crying like a child, calling out, apologizing to his mother if she could still hear him for failing her and her husband. He thanked them for the second life they had given him and promised to find them in the new world. It seemed the worst time to participate in such an inquiry, but Maki questioned internally the emotions he was feeling then. Was it for the impending death of his parents or again the disappointment in his own failure? This time not only for being unable to save his adoptive parents, but his foolish underestimation of the humans that held them. But before his mind could land on an answer to the question, a whistling sound traveled within the bowl, indicating something was flying and fast. The sound of rope snapping and pulley wheels spinning followed, producing a sight Maki couldn't see from within the building, though I can tell you would have been humorously glorious to him. The well vomited water that carried out with it not only the small wooden door that had served as a plug for the island bowl, but Maki Miam's adoptive parents as well. Both were still alive, though struggling to get an air with all the water shoving itself from the well. The guards and the council leader were stunned as to what was happening, but not enough to fail to realize that the island center would soon be a lake of its own. They began in a run, but quickly were sloshing and wading towards the main path that led up and out of the mountains surrounding them. Water also began filling the lone building Maki was bound in, but as that the snakes were one with the tree, the rising flood caused them to panic and in turn let the prisoner go. The young man waded out of the building, swam towards his parents, helping pull them towards the mountain walls. Their son was able to help them half tread water, half use the rock walls to steady themselves and keep above the rising waters until they reached the same level as those of Lake Soup. From there, they were able to scale the rest of the mountain and escape back out and down to where the rented boat waited. After some quick embraces and wringing out of the heavier articles of clothing, Maki encouraged his folks that it was time to leave the island. His mother, in her typical fashion, protested that they hadn't been fed much over the past few weeks, save an odd occasional handful of nuts raining down on them in the middle of the night, and that a quick gathering of berries or insects now would help fight off the terrible headaches and blood belches the two had been suffering from. Their son agreed and helped his mother gather some food stuff, while his father continued to cough water out from his lungs. When the young man and his mother returned to the beach, the former, in the middle of wondering what had caused the plug in the middle of the mountain to fail, there his father held up an oar in a defensive position as three of the councilman's guards closed in. Maki, though weaponless because of the flood and rushed to get away, used the last weapon he possessed. Can I ask you why you won't leave my poor father alone? Maki asked with his mouth. We have our orders, answered one of the soldiers. That may be true, but consider the source. The guards had either no facilities to understand Maki's implications or were lacking in the same knowledge the wolf hunter possessed. So the young man spelled out the whole epic story of how he had been recruited by their village councils to execute the animals their people considered divine and in thanks was now, in addition to his parents, set for execution themselves because of it. The soldiers seemed to suspect that Maki wasn't quite telling the whole truth, and thus did not lower their weapons or move back. It only stands to reason that at some point, Maki continued, 
The same councilman who ordered y'all to murder us will have someone else finish you off as well. You three aren't stupid, and he knows it. He's probably hatching a plan now to ensure you don't live to see the other side of the suit. The three begin to look at each other for counsel, murmuring words Maki and his family couldn't make out. After reaching a conclusion, the three reface Maki and his parents. We appreciate your information and will prepare our bodies and minds for death, but as it is, if we deviate from his authority, if only a little, some tape will surely have us executed once we return home. Our fate may be sealed either way. So why not do your villages and the second-hand planet a favor and just kill him before he kills you or anyone else? It's self-defense, plain and simple. They shook their heads. Some tape has already informed us that our families will be executed if he does not return home safely and in a timely manner. He is known for thinking everything that you could possibly think of months before you have actually thought of it. Maki nodded, briefly debating on whether to even bother trying to fight these men with families here on the beach. But what one of the guards said next waved away any indecision. We need all three of your heads now. Tsum Te requires them. Well, I'm sorry, friends, for your situations, but you surely understand that we gotta fight you to keep our heads. We do. And so all six prepared to defy each other in defense of they and others' lives. But before blows were exchanged, something caught all their attentions. A small girl in overalls and a backpack approached the beach from the mountain thicket. The closer she came, the more everyone there couldn't help but focus on the oddness of her dirty hair held back by barrettes made of old rusty keys and her deeply inset eyes. Also, she was carrying a device of some sort. It, with its metal rods held together by a hinge looking much like an enormous nutcracker. Without saying hi or boo, the small creature walked up right to one of the soldiers, and with the device, cracked one of his legs into two. The man howled in terrible pain as he collapsed to the sandy ground. The other two guards raised their weapons to face the child, at which Maki's father brought his oar against the jaw of one of them, surely breaking it. The last soldier, not yet injured, backed up some, tears filling his eyes at accepting that this was probably the end of his existence. We should leave this one uninjured, don't you think? The child said. So he can carry the others home? Amazed by the tiny, resourceful thing, looking to be around 10 or 11 years old, Maki nodded in agreement. Though, I'm afraid they and their families are doomed, the wolf hunter stated, he beginning to explain to the girl the guard's dire situation. The child nodded in understanding before suggesting, Let's let them get back to their master, and if I can catch a ride with y'all, I'll run on ahead and try to tell the people of the villages the truth of everything. It might help if you bring the lost children of the villages back with you, Maki suggested, further explaining all of what had transpired in his recent life. Well, if you can slow up this some tay for me, I'll swing back and grab the kids, the girl volunteered. Where did you hide them away at? At a maker convent in the Ombre Donde Mutande forest. The one in a mess of spiderwebs? Yeah, that's the one. Well, what do you know? I used to live there. Maki looked at the girl's weapon and imagined what it might do to a creature with an exoskeleton. You wouldn't be by chance good at killing enormous spiders, would you? Well, I have killed a few in my time, yes. And with a stuck-out hand, Maki Miyam greeted. It's wonderful to finally meet you, in a pesh bruisey eyes. As it is super cool to finally meet you, Maki Miyam. The young man was taken aback, and his face showed it. Yeah, you're a legend, of course, and so I found your house, but then learned that this jerk, Sumte, had your parents hostage. I've been watching over them for you, sir, as best I could without getting myself caught. Were you the one throwing a curt nuts down to us? Maki's mother asked. Yes, ma'am. I tried to bring you down a fish that I caught, but it flopped out of my hand somewhere on the ridge, and I never did find it. Probably flopping around in the ground leaves somewhere still. How did it go with the river shark spiders? 
Hmm, oh that. Yes, fine. I didn't get killed, so, you know, that's gravy on an otherwise pretty interesting life thus far. But while I was living with the fisherman, I heard about a lost letter of St. Beerbrow's to one of his greatest antagonists, Fluttery Big Lips, that might have surfaced over in the kingdom of Mahala. So, are you a digger? The girl thought for a second and answered, as if realizing the truth of her answer for the first time. Well, yes, I reckon I am. I was just curious at first, but now I feel driven to find old things and the truth about our past. I wonder if the Maker installed the heart magnet inside of me to help us remember who He is and how we're supposed to be. Hmm. Inapesh twisted her mouth and twirled a flap of hair in contemplation. In spite of the probable importance of her identity search, Maki couldn't help his want to interrupt. So, did you find the letter? The girl returned from wherever her mind had floated off to, answering, Yes and no. I found a fragment, which was more than I had before, but still frustratingly incomplete. But in that search, I had a chat with a very knowledgeable merchant over in Gessa City. He gave me some leads on a lost black disc, which legend has it contains a sacred song written on it. Two doors, one in a wall, the other in his doormat, that go to these keys in my hair. A hermit who is so kind that all abused children who lay in her arms are healed of their hurt. And a wolf that some explorer hid a map of the great hive of the rhino stigs inside before sewing him up. I found it all, but the mean old dog about killed me before he got away from me. That's part of the reason I was looking for you, Mr. Meum. I need help in bringing this terrible creature down to his inverted knees. Maki was in awe of this girl, rare in so many ways, and so not at once as was the fashion in his neck of the second-hand planet. I trust you can teach me to take out giant spiders? I'll do my dang sir. Eventually, Maki's family and the girl parted ways to finish out their immediate missions. Inapesh bruzy eyes returned into her former cloister to retrieve the children, and Maki, with his parents, with the help of the soldiers, capturing Samte as he arrived on the opposite shore. The three guards were encouraged to get on home and extract their families from the region in case Maki and Inapesh's plans failed. Samte was bound hand and foot put back into the boat, which the fisherman helped attach to a large old turtle, which tugged it away to who knows where in Sioux. Makimiam and his parents finally got home four days later and quickly set to repairing the neglected orchard. There was so much work to do that only at night in bed did the wolf hunter reflect on all that had transpired over the last few months. In spite of him having to admit to himself that he now had a crush on the spunky Inapesh bruzy eyes, and he looked forward to seeing her again, he still wondered about the fate of the slave girl in the King Cook throne room. It was a mystery he was determined to shine some sunlight on soon, he deciding to return when he was able to kern a mountain and all of its burnt bones. that's the end for now. If you want to come back to the Secondhand Planet sometime soon, you can listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 85, where I read the story Travelers and the Ghost They Sometimes Pick Up, and episode 42, Creaky Limbs, Swings, and Mouths. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.